Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I've worked with many fine reporters over the years, but right at the top of the list is my CNN colleague, Dana Bash, uh, who is at once a great reporter with wonderful sources, smart analyst, and a very, very good person. Dana just did a uh, web series called Badass Women of Washington, which is really a great watch. I sat down with her the other day to talk about her career, how Congress has changed over the years, and the current debate over health care. Dana Bash, always good to see you. It's such an honor to be here. You you come by this journalism thing honestly. Um, Well, thank you. You can just end this now. Your dad... uh, was a really highly decorated television news producer for four decades. So you grew up around all of this. I did. I grew up in control rooms, very much so. And did you think to yourself, I read somewhere that you wanted to be a rock star at one point. I did. There's only one problem. Can't sing? At all. (laughs) (laughs) Can't carry a tune. Just ask my son. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, but when did you start thinking, yeah, I'd like to do this. This would be interesting. What's so interesting is that I I fought against what's really my DNA for my whole childhood, even as I got into college. I always said to myself, I don't want to do this. Like, the Pope dies. You got to go home from your vacation. The hours are crazy. You know, because I... So my eyes were wide open about the downsides of this business. But I... And then I just stopped fighting my DNA as soon as I went to college because my um, my dad ended up working in TV news, but both my parents uh, went to Northwestern and, and studied journalism there. Uh-huh. And my parents actually met uh, at the local ABC station in Chicago. Oh, is that right? Yeah. WLS. Yeah, huh? yeah. And um, and in fact, my mom basically got my dad the job uh, because. She was working there as a secretary, which is what you did when you were a woman then. And she was very good at ironing her boss's pants. I'm not making it up. Really? Uh Uh-huh. And um, my father, I think, had been doing basic training. It was during the the Vietnam era. He was in the National Guard. But he came in for for um, an interview. And my mom said to the boss, oh, I remember him from school. He he's he's a really good writer, and he you know, and so she helped get him hired. And six months later, they and were his engaged. pants were nicely creased. Yes, exactly. <laughs> six months later, they were engaged, and the rule was at the time, and, and he was going to work for the network. He, they were moving to New York to work for ABC uh, News, and the rule was you couldn't be married and work for the same company, Nepotism, even if huh? it was in the affiliate. And yeah. so, of course, it was my oh, mom. Oh, that's grossly unfair. Totally, and it was my mom who who decided. 
that she and she went on a completely different path after that. This DNA thing is powerful, you know. I'm always embarrassed to concede that my mother, who was one of the first women in a newsroom in New York, she worked for a paper called PM in the 1940s. I didn't know that. That's so she cool. She was a freelance journalist after that, a magazine writer. And she named my sister and me, she said, because she thought our names would look good in bylines. <laughs> That is awesome. Yeah, so it's embarrassing because I ended up becoming uh, a newspaper reporter, and it's like you don't want to feel like those tracks were laid for you, but it's powerful when you grow up uh, around it. And your mom, she she had a big influence on you as well because Mm she uh, later in life she dove into um, into Jewish studies and faith is. Uh, is is big in, mm-hmm. for her and in your family. Tell me about that. Yeah, so she, you know, left journalism. She did so many different things when I was growing up. I mean, I was, I don't want to say latchkey tr- child, but I guess by today's standards, you would call it that. And and looking back, I'm. It was great for me that my mom was always working, even though she wasn't doing. Um, the field that she studied, um, but she worked in publishing. She actually worked, um, uh, you know, on when we were here in D.C., when my dad was working in D.C., she was working uh, at a l- place that was lobbying, a whole bunch of different stuff. But her passion was always and her love was always Jewish learning. And so, Why? What, you know, I think it's probably, well, lots of reasons. Um, my grandfather, her father, was... Probably was definitely the smartest person I ever met, but mostly self-taught. He escaped the Nazis uh, along with my grandmother. He was Austrian, and um, he was going to go to law school, and then that just didn't happen for him because they were trying to figure out how to stay alive and then ultimately get to the United States. But he always um, he, he was always fascinated with learning, always, and so he he that was most of his focus. His day job was kind of a sideshow for him, how he made his money. And, um, and he was always very into sort of the intellectual part of Judaism. He was spiritual, but it was more about kind of the Talmudic part of it for Uh him. And that definitely, um, kind of was part of my mother's upbringing and, and it was always where she had her interest. And so, um, I mean, just remember growing up again, she also had her day job and she had us, my brother and me, but she loved going to, um, going to temple and being on boards and being involved, particularly in the crafting of education within the temple and, and, you know, not just kids, but mostly adult education. And so when my brother and I were out of the house, she said, I'm going to go back to school. And she went to get her master's in Judaic studies. She was actually the first person to get that degree from the reform seminary everybody else who was going to school with her they were actually my age at the time going to be rabbis and she um, got her master's and then she went on to help try to you know devise um, curriculum for adults sort of when they drop their kids at hebrew school to keep them engaged and keep them involved which is a big challenge in the reformed movement a big one and so um and she wrote a couple of books with her with her hero, uh, one of her, uh, Eugene Borowitz, who was one of her professors. And so she kind of found her home there. And one of them was called Jewish Moral Virtues. You did your homework, David Axelrod. Well, it's, people do homework for me. <laughs> but, I read it, but I read it voraciously. Uh, but it interested me because, I mean, I, I will confess, I mean, I'm Jewish. I was bar mitzvahed. My family, my grandfather was Orthodox. He was mm. an immigrant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Um, but uh, it seemed, all that seemed very compulsory to me. Mm-hmm. And what I look back at now with regret is that the sort of deeper meaning and lessons of 
the faith mm-hmm. uh, that went more to character, morality, and mm-hmm. so on. Uh, those weren't stressed. It was mm-hmm. it was more the triumph of form over content. Yep. So for you, uh, what did it mean? Did you internalize things from uh, from faith that uh, inform you? You know, the the answer should be yes, based on what my hoping, mother. I was hoping did and does, <laughs> um, but certainly not in a in a conscious way at all. Um, but I think looking back probably in a subconscious way because I followed the lead of my of my parents even though I still don't believe that they actually talked to me because I was such a rotten teenager but <laughs> I did finally come back home and um and uh and I think that that all was just kind of part of who I I am and who I was just by osmosis living in the house that I did so you know one of the things that um has struck me lately with all of this discussion about immigrants about refugees and so on is my father was a refugee mm-hmm. from Eastern Europe, and uh, so uh, you know it does it does kind of formulate my thinking on this mm-hmm. because I know what America meant to him and his family absolutely and uh, and I was and I'm always proud of the fact that America is a country that's been sort of a beacon to people mm-hmm. all over the world who are looking for freedom and opportunity and so on. Um, I ask you, it's a question really about how you separate out your own personal Mm -hmm. experience from your role as a very fine political reporter who's expected to be uh, objective. Mm -hmm. It's so funny that you you were so good that you hit on that because um, this was one of the toughest ones. There's no question because my, my grandfather passed away in 2009. He was 95. And... So I got a lot of time with him that I treasure. And one of the things that we did as a family in the 90s, the mid-90s, like I think it was 1996, is my, my brother, who's two years younger than me, and I and my parents and my mom's sister, my aunt, and my grandfather, the six of us, did what my grandfather called his sentimental journey. And we spent two weeks in Europe. We went to Vienna to the to the city mm-hmm. where he was born and raised. Uh, we went to Prague, the city where he and my grandmother were married on the run, um, where he was stateless. He had to give up his papers. Um, he showed us the mountains that he escaped uh, on and from with My. gypsies helping him w- along the way. We went to the town where my grandmother was from in Hungary, Kosice, which I don't even think is Hungary anymore. And it was leveled, so he couldn't even figure out what was what or where was where, and he was very upset about it. But the whole time, the whole trip, what he just drilled into us over and over again was when he was there, and he didn't get out till 1941, Columbus Day of 1941, mm-hmm. which is really late, is Hitler and the Nazis for so long, they didn't want to kill us. They just wanted us out, and there was nowhere for us to go. We yeah. had no place to go. He even trained with his, his Zionist cousins to go to Israel, and they didn't go only because the Danube froze. And that's the only reason why he came to America and, you know, I am here. But over and over again, that was his whole message. We didn't have anywhere to go. And he was the biggest American patriot. I mean, Mm -hmm. he loved this country. Loved, loved, loved. Fourth of July was his favorite holiday. I mean, and so he rings in my ears, David. And I almost, and, and during that whole, the whole Syrian debate, I was actually, I mean, certainly not glad that my grandfather wasn't with us he would have been over 100 but still thinking 
I'm glad he's, he would have just been so sickened just to hear the back and forth about it. Yeah. Well, you know, two years after my father arrived uh, in 1924, they passed, Congress passed a very draconian uh, anti-immigration bill that set a very uh, hard quota on various groups, including Jews, uh, and that prevented uh, Jewish immigrants from coming to this country uh, throughout the 30s. Yep. Uh, and helped compound this, you know, what what is a monumental. That's exactly right. Uh, I mean, he always disaster said disaster in the Holocaust. Yeah, he always said, you know, FDR was such a great president for so many reasons, but this was a big a big blind spot that he allowed to happen, keeping those quotas in in place. Yeah, um, you know, absolutely. He only got he and my grandmother only got to this country because his brother was a chemist. They had his father owned paint factories. They did very well, which of course were all burned to the ground by the Nazis. But he was a chemist who came to Chicago to work. And he had a boss who loved him, loved my uncle, my great uncle. And he agreed to sign an affidavit, which you had to do. It was like the bare minimum to get somebody over here. And it was like $20,000 a person, which was a lot of money. Oh my back goodness. Then. Yeah. Yeah. But in today's dollars, that's astounding. Astounding. Yeah. Yeah. So you, uh, you went to George Washington University. I did. And as Go you Colonials. Sa- you said uh, that you, that's when you really ge- geared into being a, uh, a, a reporter. Mm-hmm. I read a, a story uh, about you and your roommate going to see George Stephanopoulos mm-hmm. when he spoke there. <laughs> t- tell that story. So I, was, uh, I graduated from GW in 1993. So it was, I was there. It was here in Washington as a student in you know, kind of the, the climax of the, the Clinton-Gore craze, which it really was. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was at the time. It was the next generation. It was all the things that you saw, you know, so many years later with you and, and, and your candidate with Barack Obama. But it was and at the and also the people who worked for him were really, really young, like people who we as students could relate to because yeah. they were only a few years older than we were. Um, and George was George one of just those. about beginning to look his age right now. It, I mean, it's about time. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and so my roommate in college was Melina Zakharopoulos, and I decided that she should marry George Stephanopoulos <laughs> because why shouldn't she? And she was dropped dead. Can you gorgeous. imagine what a big fat Greek wedding that was? <laughs> exactly, been? Yeah. exactly. And um, you know, drop dead gorgeous. She's super, super smart. She was majoring in philosophy. I mean, she was the full the full package. So we went to um, hear him speak. It was after the election they had won, and he was a superstar, a real superstar. And um, I was trying to figure out ways to. And I didn't know him from a hole in the wall. He didn't know me from the hole in the wall. So I was trying to devise ways for them to bump into each other. Because I knew <laughs> as soon as he bumped into Melina Zakharopoulos, he would decide that she was the one for him. But I didn't figure it out. Didn't happen, No. Huh? And history His loss. take a different Although Allie's, Allie's a great, great person. <laughs> How did your roommate do? She did great. Okay. She did great. It's She's great. She's well happy, well. happily married, three kids. Great life. So you, you did a lot of uh, interning and stringing and... When you were in uh, college, talk about that experience and how much did that, how formative was that for you? It, it was incredibly formative because I really, so I, uh, my sophomore year, I applied to and got into a program at GW called Political Communication, which uh, was tremendous. It was all about, it was political science, journalism, communications, and then it was government and kind of how they all interact, which was kind of a great 
you know, training ground for what we do now. Yes. But, um, but even, even though I got in there and I was doing that, I wasn't sure where I wanted to go. I wasn't sure if I wanted to work in public relations. I wasn't sure if I wanted to work in politics. And so because I was here in D.C., I had so many opportunities to work not just in the summertime but during the school year and intern. And I, and I took advantage of it. I did um, – I interned for uh, Capital Cities, the, the, the parent company for ABC, in their corporate communications department. I worked with the best people, but I realized I did not. That was not for me. So I, I actually think, and I tell this to young people all the time, interning is as much about figuring out what you don't want to do as it is what you do want to do. So I figured that out. And then I um, was on the Hill for, I did a couple days a week, one semester for Don Regal of ah, Michigan. Yeah, I, former senator from Former Michigan. senator from Michigan, who I had no connection to. It was just somebody who was a professor, knew that they needed somebody. And um, I did a little bit of volunteering, um, answering phones in the press shop in the White House my second semester, my senior year. And I got a – and after I had done internships uh, at CBS News here in Washington – at NBC News on the desk in New York, actually during the 92 um, campaign, uh-huh. I was able to go to the convention in New York in 92, which was really cool. And uh, and then my last semester of my senior year when I was here, I at the time internships weren't paid. Now most of them are, but they weren't. And I thought, you know, it would be nice if I actually made some money um, <laughs> doing this. So I had like a three-person deep connection here at CNN, and I just happened to call on a day where this person, his name was Bill Kazarba, who ran the, the newsroom at the time, was getting an earful from the person who works in the feeds room because there were only two people who could do it. Um, and Explain it, what one, the feeds room the, is. Well, the feeds room doesn't really exist right anymore. Right. But at the time, the feeds room was, um, it was actually a little closet where you had VCRs for young people. VCR was this thing where you put an actual tape in. Yes. <laughs> and, you would, and you would actually... And then explain what newspapers are. When exactly. I know when I'm done with this. Um, and so there were probably eight VCRs and you're responsible for literally pressing play and record to make sure you get the Senate floor, the House floor, um, the stakeout at the White House, the House, the White House briefing. And if you don't record it, you're kind of hosed because the network doesn't have it. I mean, you can get a copy from C-SPAN or somebody, but it, it wasn't digital. I mean, it was a big deal to get a, a, a videotape copy. So that and then um, when Pete, when the reporters did packages, um, reports. It was all put together on a videotape, and you had to take the videotape and put it in the VCR and press play and send it down to Atlanta so it could get on the air. Again, none of this exists anymore. It's all old technology. But there were only two people who did it, and when one person would take a vacation or was sick, that person had worked from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. So there were this guy, Bill Kazarva, was getting an earful, like, I need help, and I just happened to call that day. And he said, okay, you want to come in, come learn the feeds room? I said, okay. I had no idea what that meant, but I came in and worked with somebody <laughs> who was also still at CNN. She's an editor now who um, who taught me the feeds room, and I came in and learned that. And then, uh, What year I, was that? That was 1993. Mm-hmm. And when I graduated uh, from college, there was a, a job open in the tape library, another place that doesn't exist anymore because um, there's no tapes and there's no library. But that was really the only way to get in. There were no real entry-level jobs here at CNN in the Washington Bureau. The tape library and the receptionist in the front hall, um, they were the only entry-level jobs, and then you could kind of work your way up from there. So I was lucky that there was a job open, which didn't happen very often, and I, and I applied and I got it. So I got it 
on my 22nd birthday, and I've been here ever since. I heard that you uh, had an interesting in, uh, initiation <laughs> to feeding scripts into the teleprompter. Oh. Uh, machine. You know, to even to this day, when you mention it, my stomach gets a little <laughs> queasy because it was so horrible. Um, what happened was, at the time, the teleprompter was like a conveyor belt. And so the scripts were printed. And if the script was long, you had um, like script number one was one A, B, C, and D. And you had to actually tape with a piece of scotch tape, tape them together in order it's the right way to do it, put it in order, and put it on the conveyor belt so that the anchor is reading it. And there was a little camera that went on the conveyor belt and went into the teleprompter. Well, as part of my duties in the feeds room, nobody told me that it also included being basically the production assistant for a show that was like at 3, three o'clock in the afternoon. I had no idea what I was doing, none. And there were because there were no real entry-level jobs, uh, the people who really did know what they were doing were the actual interns, the people who weren't getting paid, who were in school, who had a little bit more experience doing it. Long story short, it got totally messed up, and it was like 1A, 1D, 1E, and the anchor was reading, who ended up being my boss and a, and a mentor to me. But the You're anchor, going to name the anchor? Frank says no, uh-huh. but he denies this, and I want to say that he is the nicest guy. <laughs> but what happened, understandably, was he was hung out to dry, came into the control room after the show, was very upset, and was talking to the producer about it. And he looked at me and said, who are you? And I said, my name is Dana. It's my first day. He goes, oh, yeah? Well, it's going to be your last. (laughs) Like, out of a movie. And I went to the bathroom and threw up. (laughs) So that seems like the right way to handle it. Exactly. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with Dana Bash. So, you know, I, I did a podcast with Joe Madden, who's the manager of the Chicago Cubs, mm-hmm. and then I actually wrote a piece for The New Yorker about the Cubs, and I talked to people about Joe, and uh, the thing that he said and that they said was one of the things that has served him well was that he's done everything in baseball. Mm-hmm. He had been a, a, a hitting instructor. He had been you know, a minor league coach and manager and scout, and, and he understood all of these different roles, and, and reading your history, it strikes mm-hmm. me that you're a little bit the same. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've done everything, but you spent a lot of time uh, for CNN when you finally got out of the out <laughs> of all of those jobs that those menial jobs, but important jobs. And you were a producer on the Hill mm-hmm. for years. I was, I was, and you know the thing about I will say the thing about CNN is uh, particularly when I started is that there were so few people. And at the time, there was no Fox, there was no MSNBC, so we were kind of we were really the the little engine that could still. And um, because there were so few people, if you wanted to do it, if you frankly had a pulse and an interest, you could go do it. So I got a lot of a lot more experience than I probably would have otherwise at a, at a different place. Um, but I did work my way through the weekend shows. I was an associate producer and a producer, which again got me so much experience and. In booking, in writing, in in package producing, in figuring out how to get a satellite, how to get satellite time, things like that. But then I wanted to go to news gathering. I made a conscious decision that I wanted to see what it was like to actually report news. Not as a reporter. I didn't think I want to be a reporter, but I wanted to be where the action was. I wasn't sure. I, I, I genuinely wasn't sure. That wasn't my goal. I wasn't. I wasn't one of those people who said I want to be an on-air reporter. Um, 
And if I were, I probably would have done the more traditional route and gone out to a local station. Um, but I just loved this story. I loved politics. I loved Washington. It was, and you did a lot of reporting. I did in a lot the of producer role. exactly, and th- and that's exactly what happened. So, I was lucky in that I went to the assignment desk and I was doing some, you know story some news gathering in terms of helping reporters on on stories the the newsroom was set up in a in a different way than it is now but at the end of the day i ended up on capitol hill just helping out during the impeachment trial of of bill clinton and candy crowley was a correspondent there her producer mike roselli and they just that was it and they needed help and so again it was all hands on deck but i fell in love with it i thought this is so cool you get to walk around and talk to actual senators and their actual aides and and house members and and have conversations with them and really learn it's 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 still to me the best beat in washington because of the access that you have um they went on to cover the 2000 presidential election and i got the job as senate producer which is effectively and still is our my colleague ted barrett is has been in that job for a long time and he's one of the best reporters, reporters yeah. on Capitol Hill, because it's news gathering and it's source building. Yeah, I mean, I think one of your strengths, and I'd say this behind your back, <laughs> is that you you have good sources and you know how to work them. And the essence of uh, of good journalism is going out, not assuming you know, but mm-hmm. going out and asking questions and asking questions of people who actually do know mm-hmm. uh, what's going on. So, uh, but that is the product of years of relationship building. Right. Right, years, years and and being present. Just being just you're not sitting in the in the in the booth. There's a little, you know, booth where CNN has a little office space and all the networks and the print people have the same, but just just literally roaming the halls. And just and then you, you never know what you find. When you roam the halls, you see Senator X going into the office of Senator Y, and you know that Senator X is working on, you know, a certain piece of legislation. And, you, oh, wow, is Senator Y maybe? And so you kind of learn how to piece things together just by being present. And if you, de- if you develop relationships and they know that you, they can trust you uh, not to burn sources mm-hmm. and so on, uh, generally people in public life, are can be more forthcoming than Absolutely. than you'd think. Absolutely. Because they often aren't forthcoming when they're in front of a camera. No question. No question. And and you know you probably had this experience when you were a reporter. I I've I've gotten scooped on a lot of things that I was told off the record. But because I kept it off the record, um and I didn't feel that I could even go elsewhere to try to confirm it because that would burn that person. I got scooped, and but it, does, it stinks pays at off the later. time. Exactly, yeah. but it pays off later because you build relationships, and that trust factor is something that you can't, um, you know, you can't put a, a value on. One of the stories that you covered when you were there uh, was uh, the nine eleven mm-hmm. uh, attack, uh, and uh, talk about that day. Oh, you know, I still to this day, really go into the into the uh, rotunda of the Capitol. And I look up and I, I mean, I put my arms out, which is a ridiculous thing, but it just kind of helps me. And I think, okay, if a plane actually did hit, if Flight 93, which the 9-11 Commission said was heading for the Capitol, did hit the Capitol, how far, like the wingspan, how far out would it, what would it mean? And, and those are the things that still go through my mind thinking about that day of 9-11. And I was, uh, when the plane the second plane hit the towers. I was still on my way to the Capitol. I was a producer at the time. And it was such a different 
mindset that we could still park right on the Capitol grounds, even reporters. Um, the cops did kind of do a perfunctory look in your trunk to make sure nothing was in there. But when they saw me coming, they were helping me get in because they knew that, you know, we all know each other. It's like a family. And they were trying to help me get in because they knew I had to go work. And as I was coming up the the, the east front of the Capitol, um, the plane was hitting the Pentagon, which they could see the people in the offices on the west front could see out the window. They could see the smoke. And so the second I actually got into the first, onto the first floor of the Capitol, I pressed the button for the elevator, and then the cops started screaming, everybody run, get out, get out, we're being evacuated. So I ran out. Somehow, miraculously, a CNN camera guy was sort of right there. It was before live views or, or the technology was such that you could pretty much go live with the, with a cell phone. You couldn't do that there. So he plugged in to a, a fiber drop, which allowed us to go live, which was right across from the Senate um, chamber, and uh, we were about to just even put up a live picture. Already the cell phones were not working because everything was just jammed up. And then, this is probably one of the scariest moments I'll never forget, the, the police officers started to scream, run, run for your lives. Oh, wow. And so and we were all gathered across the plaza, uh, kind of on the grass across from the Senate, and people just started running. I remember seeing shoes just kind of on the lawn because women were running out of their shoes and to hear a, a, a police yeah, run for officer your life doesn't sound like say, the, run for your the life. right way to go exactly and <laughs> and and it was because they didn't know where flight 93 was right and uh and they thought it was coming and at the end of the day they were right but 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 the other thing that was not in place at the time were the basic kind of continuity of government things that we now know robert bird was who was president pro tem he was third in line to be president was of the United States was was wandering around he didn't have any staff with him he didn't know where to go he was just kind of wandering around over by the Supreme Court I mean it was it was mayhem it was absolute mayhem yeah and um, you know I I know that you covered just recently this shooting over Mm -hmm. in Virginia of Steve Scalise the shootings uh, the the targeting of Mm -hmm. the Republican members of Congress um what, what does that do? You, you hang around there a lot. Mm-hmm. These are friends as well as uh, people you cover. I, I guess it's okay to say, but I, I mean... Well, they're human. Yes. I mean, you have human relationships, yeah. and that's and that's normal and natural, and I think actually good, especially my, in a town I, like Washington. Yeah, but my question is, I mean, we saw the, the great outpouring in mm-hmm. the aftermath of that, uh, and this great hope that somehow mm-hmm. this would create a new spirit of comedy with a T, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not really what happens, is it? It's not. I mean, I remember from Gabby Giffords. I I, I was talking to Gabby Giffords just off the House floor uh, the f- Thursday or Friday before she was shot. And I remember her telling me all about this great trip she and her family had taken to the Vatican. And we were just, you know, kibitzing. Um, I wasn't doing an actual, I wasn't trying mm-hmm. to get information from her. And you know, then she was shot. She almost didn't make it. And after that, you remember, you were, I think you were working at the White House at the yeah. time. There was, again, this burst of, of comedy, of, of the need to dial it back, and, the need, and, the, and everybody started sitting together at the State of the Union addresses, and, and uh, Republicans, Republicans and Democrats, and Democrats together, they used to, yeah. you know, yeah. And, um, you know, it, it, it's nice for a little while, but then it wears off, and the, the, the reality of the 
very harsh political discourse comes back. How have things changed in the years that you've been covering Congress? Mm -hmm. I mean, I I have my own feelings about this because I've been around a few more years than you, but you've been here quite a few by now. Uh, And how how has the environment of the Congress uh, and this town changed Mm -hmm. over the course of your tenure as a reporter? Bipartisanship did not used to be a dirty word. Compromise did not used to be a dirty word. I, I can't tell you how many blisters I ended up getting on my feet from standing in hallways outside of meetings where Democrats, Republicans, um, representatives from the White House, Democrat and Republican White Houses, were behind closed doors having genuine discussions about really important legislation and how to do it in a, in a bipartisan way. And the question wasn't, are they going to come out with you know, a compromise or are they just, is this just going to die? It was, what is that compromise going to be? There was so much faith in the system and in the grownups in the room, frankly, that that was, it was a given that there would be something that would be, that would come out, you know, it might not have been perfect, but you know, it was the days of Ted Kennedy and Orrin Hatch and um, John Warner. And I mean, Orrin Hatch is still there, but it just, it doesn't work for him. The system doesn't work for him the way it did. And um, and it's just it's not like that anymore, and who, it's really too bad. Who were um, who were some of the the most impactful people that you dealt with? Who are the people who impressed you the most? Definitely, Ted Kennedy is one of them. I mean, by far on the Democratic side, because you know, for so many reasons, but because his dreams of becoming president didn't happen, and he poured his heart and soul into learning the art of legislating and to what it takes to be really impactful in the United States Senate, and he did it. Yeah. He did some great, great things. What's interesting about him is that he became a target for Republican campaigns. Mm-hmm. He was always the poster child in the way that Nancy Pelosi yes. is now. Uh, and yet he was well-liked by people on both sides mm-hmm. of the aisle. Within that, that within the walls of the yep. Senate, he was as popular as, as anyone. No question. No question. He, I mean, Orrin Hatch was, was one of his very good friends. Spoke I, at his memorial exactly. service, as did John McCain. As did John McCain. Um, I remember being invited to emcee a, um, a charity, uh, it was Catholic Charities, that was, was co-founded by Ted Kennedy and John Boehner. And they worked very closely together right, on this. Right, they're both on the education committee. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, so th- there's no question he was very well-liked. And on the Republican side, people like John Warner, uh, who was kind Former of the— senator from Virginia. Senator from Virginia, the, 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 the ultimate Virginia gentleman. And, uh, you know, like all of these guys, they, they make their enemies. But he wanted to do right. Um, and, he, and he knew that he was going to get hammered at home a lot uh, for— working on bipartisan legislation and he didn't always do it just like Ted Kennedy didn't always do it but he did it enough and he did it where he thought it really would be most impactful to the people who needed it how do we how do we uh, navigate around this period just as someone who observes yeah. politics closely and just and let me ask you uh, we'll we'll answer that and then mm-hmm. I have a, a kind of harder question that seems like a hard question but I've got an even harder it, well, question well it, it is a hard question because it used to be the answer used to be um, you know, fundraising and so much of the time and energy that these 
politicians spend, especially in the House, where they're basically always running because they are on the ballot every two years, having to go across the street because you can't raise money in the Capitol and dial for dollars or go to fundraisers at night in times where they could and probably should be having a drink with somebody across the aisle the way it used to be. Um, It's not that simple anymore because now a person can win with with grassroots fervor and so and a social media and, a, and an internet presence with almost no money at all so they also mostly don't have to worry about a general election in most they, cases right. they're only worried about some right-wing challenge that's right and that's, left-wing challenge. And, and that's the look and at the end of the day that's the real answer the real answer is and I use, i've seen it the gerrymandering is horrendous it's absolutely horrendous. And I've had Republican, and when I say gerrymandering, I mean that the only challenge that most Republicans have to worry about is from the right. So their interest is always to be drawn to the right. Less so among Democrats, but a lot of Democratic it's, districts are drawn very heavily Democratic. Right. So Sometimes by Republican legislatures to get all Democrats in ex- one district. Exactly, exactly. But that, And so that's the—I I remember covering Congress when there were moderate Republicans from the North. Um, New England Republicans, who who was in their interest to represent their constituents, to work with Democrats because there were those were the people who and and, and conservative Democrats from the South and conservative blue dog Democrats from the South, exactly right, and that was a, a lot of the, the the basis for for compromise, which doesn't exist anymore. And I've had really conservative Republicans say to me in the halls of Congress, even a couple of weeks ago, that there's more and more quiet talk about how it's not fun anymore and that they're also worried about a challenge from the right. They feel like they can't make a move without doing, you know, with the, without the right being okay with it and that maybe more Republicans and more conservatives are going to be interesting, interested in redistricting and, and that those kinds of reforms. Well, this we'll certainly see. would drove Boehner out of the yeah, house. no question. Um, the, the harder question I wanted to ask you uh, is what role, and I include myself in this now because I'm, I'm over here at CNN Mm -hmm. as well. But the modern media environment, Mm -hmm. the whole breaking news mentality, Mm -hmm. the need to get eyeballs and and therefore to take what may not be uh, the most cataclysmic story Mm -hmm. and assign great importance to it so that people have a reason to come back 24-7 and watch. Conflict is more interesting Mm -hmm. than comedy Mm -hmm. with a T again. Yeah. No, that's true. That's absolutely true. Um, I think it was probably always the case in in journalism, but but the conflict um, historically has been about ideas, which is what this country is supposed to be about—a conflict of ideas—and trying to figure out what the best idea is. Um, I think that it's it's and it's it's not just cable news. I think it's even across the board. Even the Gray Lady has to deal with this. That it's not New York Times. New York Times. That it's that it's the conflict. Um, the, the notion of conflict is taken on a, a, a life of its own. And well, I and I think it has to do also with competitive pressures. I mean, the definitely. news business is very competitive now with social media, the Internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I know I never had to file every hour or two exactly. when I was a reporter, but that is now a Do you demand. see it differently? I mean, since you've been a reporter, obviously, like you said, yes. you didn't have to file every hour or two. That you didn't have to right. worry about I the was internet. Reporting just after the Gutenberg <laughs> press came out, but uh, no. It, look, you had time to edit. 
you had time to report and mm-hmm. editors had time to ask questions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had n- what were called news cycles, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where you were filing by 9 o'clock at night for the next morning's paper. Mm-hmm. And so you had a whole day to report out your story. And that, that's a luxury that most reporters uh, don't have anymore. No. And I think it and, – and there is this competitive pressure to be mm-hmm. first. Mm-hmm. And first used to mean to get it in the morning paper. Now it means within the next 10 minutes. Yep. And I think that – that, that uh, you know, reporting suffers in that under those kinds of pressures. A lot of great work's being done, mm-hmm. but also a lot of stories aren't put in the proper context. The context is key. That's exactly right. And and you know, especially when you know, if you if you're able to get a story out and get it out first, it's usually with a link on Twitter to the broader piece, which has context. That doesn't always happen, and you're limited to what is Twitter? 140, 140, 140 yeah. characters. Yes. Which, as we've learned from the guy who's uh, in the White House, doesn't always allow you the space to give enough context to, to what you're trying to say. There are times when zero characters would suit better. <laughs> yeah. It would be better for him and the country if he abided by that limitation. Um, let me ask you about uh, a couple of figures who you've covered over the years. Uh, Nancy Pelosi has come under fire recently from some of her own troops mm-hmm. after the result in Georgia. I thought kind of unfairly. I agree. Because uh, that was always going to be a difficult district. And I think they would have depicted John Ossoff as a liberal were there a Nancy Pelosi. It would have helped if he lived in the district where he was. Well, he had no roots. He was an (laughs) unknown, basically, to the district. And yet uh, he came awfully close to winning Mm -hmm. a district that had been in Republican hands for 40 years. Mm -hmm. But there is this disconsternation among younger members because you've got a bunch of septuagenarians Mm -hmm. who in the leadership, including Pelosi. My experience with her is that she's an extraordinary, tough, smart, Mm -hmm. canny person. And she was unbelievably helpful to Barack Obama when he was president. But uh, do the younger members have a, a point about the need for new leadership? Yes, I think they do. I, th- I, think, I think they all have points, and that's, that's the problem. I think that the, the younger members do see there's Nancy Pelosi, there's Steny Hoyer, they're about the same age. Um, there's Clyburn, who's not that far behind, maybe even a, a few years older. And, and those are the leaders uh, in their party. They do have younger people who they bring to the table for that exact reason. Um, but Listen, I, I am somebody, I've observed Nancy Pelosi for years. And yeah, she's been there for a long time. But you correct me if I'm wrong, because you were in the White House. I do not think Obamacare would have gone not a through chance. if she weren't not the leader. A chance. She knows her caucus. She is, here's, here's why she is a, a leader that's going to be very hard to, to, to parallel, to, to compare with. She knows her caucus, hundreds of people. So well, I mean, and not just their kids' names, their grandkids' birthdays, their sign, their favorite color, you know, what they ate for breakfast, but kind of what what makes them tick. And it's because of that that she can hold them and she can get things done. And I think that the the fact that she pushed back dur- when uh, back during um, the Obamacare fight, the very lengthy one, where uh, when the Senate lost the the 60th vote, when Scott Brown won in in, uh, in Massachusetts, and tell me if this, these stories are wrong, but from everything we hear, she she was one of the people who stood up and said, "No, this is our chance. We got to do this," and she willed it. I think so. there were two people who 
took that position, one yeah. was Barack Obama and mm-hmm. the other was Nancy Pelosi, mm-hmm. and it wouldn't have happened uh, otherwise. She, uh, well, let me take a short break, and I'll be right back with Dana Bash. One of my favorite Pelosi stories was uh, uh, that I was not in this meeting, but it was reported to me that one of her members from a more conservative district uh, was unhappy about a vote or something that she was asking them to take. And uh, he, she was walking out of the room, and the member said, it's easy for her to say she's from San Francisco, and she turned around and came back to the, this member and pointed her finger in his chest and said, uh, Listen, I can't. I spend every weekend away from my grandchildren to raise money from liberals for people like you. She said, "So don't give me that." And she walked out of the room, and then all the members turned on that guy and said, "You owe her an apology." Exactly it goes to your point. Exactly. And look, she's she's. I mean, talk about badass women. She is the ultimate. And we are going to talk. We will, about but she's women. the ultimate badass because she she look she rules. Maybe badass isn't even the way to. She's old school. She rules no, like an she's old. She's the daughter. People forget she's the daughter of the mayor of Baltimore. Who, 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 and her job when she was a little girl was to help make the index cards for her father about whose favors that they owe or who owes him favors. Right. I mean, that's that's the knee that she learned on. Right, and she still she's not an effete San Francisco liberal. No, when it comes not to, at all. Comes to politics. Not at all. Let me ask you about uh, Mitch McConnell, mm-hmm. um, who you know I, I think. I have to give him credit for diabolical um, cleverness. Uh, he made a decision back in 2009 that bipartisan cooperation was not in his interest in terms of winning back seats for the Senate in, in, in the Congress generally. And, uh, you know, he was the first resist movement. Mm-hmm. He was. Uh, and he enforced that discipline on his members. We tried when I was in the White House to get cooperation on the health bill went, mm-hmm. kept it open as you remember for mm-hmm. months and months and months as democratic members tried to get republicans to come along president met with them they said we can't you know it's a policy being enforced yeah. here on a, strate- a strategy being enforced uh and that's the way the eight years went and he forced uh president obama to become more and more of a partisan mm-hmm. i think and undercut one of his core mm-hmm. uh credentials and then we had the garland Mm-hmm. Uh, the Garland situation where he held the Supreme Court open, uh, seat open. And now we have health care. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a health care bill that may come to the floor this week, never having had a public hearing, mm-hmm. two, 20 hours of amendments, and then a vote on something of enormous uh, magnitude. Um, talk about McConnell mm-hmm. as a personality mm-hmm. in the context of the history I just... Well, it's, act- it's funny because if you look at McConnell... And Pelosi, we were just talking about, and, and Harry Reid, who was ruled with the same kind of mm-hmm. iron fist, but a very different approach to it. Um, they all have one thing in common that I've been thinking about a lot lately, is that they have the thickest skin known to mankind. They just, they make a decision, and they are willing to take the hits and to be the poster children for it. And, you know, for right or wrong, and that's just the way it goes. Mitch McConnell ate, you know what, for a year on the Supreme Court decision, decision, the decision not to give Merrick Garland a vote, hoping and praying that there would be a Republican in the White House and it would be it would be moot. And you yeah. know what? It paid off. It was a- uh, right or wrong, it was just a very a very uh, intense political decision. 
And so that is Mitch McConnell in a nutshell. He's not Mr. Backslapper. He's not a. He's certainly not a public speaker. And he's not a policy guy. And he's not a policy guy. He is the ultimate insider, tactician, um, political chess player. And, um, and, and I think that in so many ways, in the opposition, that helped him because of what you were just describing to how he positioned or forced the president, President Obama to position himself yeah. in a way that he didn't want to be. But it's the jury's still out on what it means now that he's in charge with the guy in the White House. Because, I mean, just one example that really surprised that me. That would be Donald Trump for those the, the, who are, aren't following along here. <laughs> for those who are on planet Mars. But um, the, 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 just the rollout of their health care bill. Never mind that they were doing it behind closed doors. Whatever. Okay, that's, that's, uh, that's, that happens on both sides of the aisle. But when it was time to unveil it, it was just thrown online. There was nobody who came out and did as much as a press conference and said, here's why this is good for America. So what it did was it left a giant vacuum, and Chuck Schumer smartly jumped right into that vacuum and, and all of the opponents to try to define this bill as negative. And that's, that was a very big um, mistake, I thought, from the, from the perspective of Mitch McConnell in that he, he, he let that vacuum happen. However... Let's just get into, like, the real conspiracy talk. Unless it is that those who say that he just doesn't care and he wants his office plate mm-hmm. and he didn't want to fight for it, and maybe he's kind of okay with Obamacare Listen, staying there is the a, land? There is, a, there is a theory here that this is a terrible bill from a political standpoint. Exactly. You're, you're, ta- you're giving the base what they want in the short run. But in the long run... You know, when you're giving a billion dollars of tax cuts mm-hmm. primarily to very rich people mm-hmm. and taking away health care from tens of millions of people, mm-hmm. that elderly mm-hmm. people with disabilities and so on, that's a, like, those are negative ads ready made. Exactly. And let's just say that this does become law, just as you said. And let's just say the policy works and, and people, their health care and their health insurance situation is better. In the short term, there's no way that's going to happen because it's not even written that way. So in the short term, they're definitely going to take a political hit. But you're saying that your theory is that that he he I is, think he he does is not crazy want like to a fox. Be, he does he not want to be accused by the base yeah. of, of being the guy who stopped this repeal and replace. Mm-hmm. I also do think— But he doesn't want to s- sell it, it to the point where he realizes it's actually in the long term going to I mean, there's the a theory that, that, yeah. that could be— I, I, that I could think be. that's legit. I mean, look, tax breaks for the wealthy and cutting back the welfare state and sticking it to Barack Obama are mm-hmm. three of the favorite things of Republicans. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to discount that possibility. But, but strategically, because he does think strategically, ha- not being— the guy who's caught uh, out uh, of the chair in a game of, of mm-hmm. musical chairs mm-hmm. on this thing and yet not having it succeed might be the best of, of, of all worlds. So where does this health care bill go? McConnell has made a big-time mm-hmm. big gamble to throw it out there. It's clear he doesn't have the votes yet. There's a ton of pressure on these senators, although they'd get more if they recessed and went home. I agree. Uh, What's your bet on whether he gets these votes? You know, pretty much every five minutes, if you ask me, I have a different kind of feeling on it. Uh, At this moment, I would say it's more likely than not that it dies, that it doesn't pass. Um, 
you know, on the just on the moderate side, Dean Heller is out there, and it's very hard to imagine them putting enough uh, money in there for for Medicaid and figuring out a way to magically uh, make the CBO show that uh, that premiums are going to go down for people. The, the, well, the big also, issues and, that he and, has, and if they did, to hold the 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 the, the, the right. That's wing. exactly right. That's exactly right. So. I'm guessing that he's going to be hard to get. Susan Collins, another moderate, seems hard to get. She's she also has another um, a lot of things weighing on her. Like, is she going to run for governor? Which is a whole different set of of kind of political considerations and constituent considerations. So they can only lose two, right? So there you have two, and then okay, well, what about Rand Paul, who is pretty much consistently in the hell no category? But he's also the junior senator from Kentucky, where Mitch McConnell is. So does he feel enough of a kind of allegiance to Mitch McConnell? Well, their relationship has been a little stormy over the years. Their relationship has been stormy. uh, Mitch McConnell didn't support him when he ran originally. That's true. He didn't support him when he ran originally. Or for president. Maybe he did. I don't know. But, well, he he basically said he was going to— I think pretty much say out, but but by the time that Rand Paul ran for president, they had come together because Rand Paul saved Mitch McConnell's. You know what? Rand Paul really worked very hard when Mitch McConnell had a tough primary fight in Kentucky. Yes, and to help him yes, win, he did. And so they have a they have a, a, yeah, a, a, a kind of a marriage of convenience. He, maybe he feels he's paid his debt. Maybe, and that's mm-hmm. the other thing. I mean, you know, he's Rand Paul is. Regardless of what you think about his convictions, he is truly a man oh, yeah, of conviction. No, I, I yeah, you know, that. you know. Yeah. So, so if that's three, yeah. And like you said, it's hard to imagine even if they do try to appease yeah. and appeal to those moderates, you're going to there's not lose enough wrapping paper to cover the package. Here. I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so. What about the guy in the White House? What What are you hearing from Republicans on the Hill about him privately? We know what they he's, say publicly. He's incredibly communicative he loves to be on that phone on his cell phone by the way still did, right. did, did president obama use his cell phone in the oval office no his personal in fact cell phone? i'm i don't think he was able to use his cell phone for anything but email oh well that changed obviously yes. and um and but, so but he on- didn't want the russians to know what he was saying so it's different <laughs> so anyway um he uh he's on his cell phone all the time I wonder if it's going to change now that his family is actually in the residence, but I'm not so sure. But because he was kind of rattling around in the White House from 6 p.m. to to 8 a.m. And um, so he talks to people all the time, even people you would not suspect that he would talk to who he doesn't have a long, wonderful, warm history with. Um, a, A lot of it, he does a lot of ruminating about, do you think I should get rid of? Ryan's Priebus, or do you think I should, what do you think I should do? I guess and, he does a lot of ruminating and sometimes some fulminating, too. Huh? <laughs> yes. Yeah. But, um, um, but there is still a, a sliver of, of hope among even his sharpest Republican critics that on some issues, maybe, maybe not any domestic issues, frankly, but on some national security and international issues, putting Russia aside, Iraq, Afghanistan, that they can still that he's still a, a kind of a blank slate that they can help form. Well, um, they have Mattis, who they and all they have Mattis. like, yeah. Um, but I, they're but they're by the way. But at the end of the day, this whole tweeting thing is it causes such heartburn. It's I mean you can imagine you're a member of Congress and you're walking through the hallways and you're going to cast a vote on whatever issue it is that you said that you wanted, and all you're the only thing that happens is you're 
asked by reporters about the latest tweet that the president sent. And it's not because we're obsessed with a random tweet. It's because it has consequential yeah. um, a consequential impact. He's not on, tweeting about the weather. He's not. No. So, no, I, uh, I think it's difficult for them. I think it's difficult for the White House staff. I asked uh, Sean Spicer when he was at the University of Chicago at my mm-hmm. Institute of Politics uh, whether he knew what the president was going to be tweeting. And he said, no. And I said, well, how do you sleep at night? <laughs> he said, no, I sleep okay. He said, but I wake up early and look at my yeah. my phone he, first thing to see, see what and, I'm going to be dealing with that day. And the rest of the world. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's, it's everybody's a, first, you know, certainly in this town, the first thing you do is you wake up and you look at the president's Twitter feed to see what the day is going to bring. And real, really fast, because I want to talk about mm-hmm. this great web series that you've done. Um, where do you think this probe story is going, at least from the congressional end? I mean, how how committed do you think the Congress is to actually looking at these issues? I think the Senate Intelligence Committee is really genuinely committed in a bipartisan way. Um, Richard Burt, to this moment, has stepped up in a way that, frankly, that... Well, He's the chairman, senator chairman from North of the, Carolina. Uh, uh, right. A, a chairman of the Intelligence Committee. Also not running for re-election. He just won, which, you know, kind of takes the shackles, the political shackles off of anybody. Uh, and um, I think even his Democratic colleagues are surprised at how seriously he's taking this. So, you know, where it goes and what the end result will be, who knows? But I think that's legit. The House is a mess. The House intelligence probe is a mess. Even though there are a lot of people who have really good intentions, it just the whole the chairman, Devin Nunes, and the, that the weird, bizarre stuff that happened with him and the White House and that just set that off. And I don't think it's there's really a way for it to come back. So only 20 percent of the Congress mm-hmm. uh, are women. That's about the same percentage as hold executive offices in the states. And uh, it, it seems to be pretty consistent mm-hmm. uh, in our politics. Uh, but you have taken a look at some uh, sort of iconic women mm-hmm. uh, in this wonderful web series, Badass Women <laughs> of Washington. Tell me about why you decided to do this and, and what did you learn? Um, we decided to do it after Hillary Clinton lost. And I was having lunch with a couple of colleagues and talking about kind of the, the, the prospect for another female who could could and would be in the running to be the party's nominee, never mind actually winning the presidency. And I said, wait a minute, you guys, there's so many women who we cover every day who are already making incredible strides and broke barrier after barrier after barrier. And it just kind of, it it took off from there. And so what I wanted to do was talk to a cross-section of women when it comes to their politics, generation, um, geography, and um, and it was fascinating to actually spend time like you and I are doing now away from the you know fifteen second sound bites and to really get to know their stories and where they came from and you know whether it's Diane Feinstein who has which this- is a spe- I, I recommend that episode to to anyone because she has such an extraordinary story she and does eighty almost eighty five years old yep, she I just mean, turned eighty four she just yeah. del- delivers uh, in so so well and so strongly Mm -hmm. and and uh and she so she yeah she was the first uh woman president of the board of supervisors uh in in san San francisco Francisco, which is a huge deal then because of a double murder she became the mayor then became the first female mayor and won in her own right for 10 years she was there for 10 years and then became the first woman elected from california to the united states lost a race in for governor she lost for governor yeah and that's the one that's there's so many lessons from her uh her discussion but the key for me was actually how i ended the piece was her advice to younger women you're going to get defeated 
and you take defeat after defeat after defeat. You stand up, you brush yourself off, and you do it again. Yeah, she's 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 tough, mm-hmm. and uh, that comes across. And that's she she manages to be tough without being uh, acerbic. Yes. Uh, which, which is a great quality. It is, and it's frankly, it's not. It's not easy for women, even in yeah. today's today's uh, day and age. What do you uh, What do you think the women uh, in Washington, particularly the Congress, mm-hmm. bring? When I uh, When I started in politics, uh, I think uh, uh, you know I was around when Barbara Mikulski mm-hmm. moved up from the the House to the Senate. She was the first Democratic uh, woman. Uh, yep. In the Senate now, you know you have a, a much larger number, but still not nearly uh, a majority. What do they bring uh, to the debate here? And would things be different mm-hmm. if, uh, say, half the members yeah. were women? Um, I do think it would be different if half the members were women. I, I genuinely am not just saying this. I think that we probably would have more things that get done because, um, the, the, and just this is by uh, by example, the women who were who are there tend to. Um, look, women are problem solvers. It's what we do. We multitask and we problem solve. Um, you know, whether it's figuring out how to get your kid from point A to point B, uh, or, or you know, creating policy as they are now for some of the most important parts of, of American society. And so, and just it's seeing the way that Barbara Mikulski and Kay Belly Hutchison on the Republican side, she she retired as well. Both of them started this dinner club in the Senate, and they meet once a month off the record, no notes, a little bit of wine, and they get to know each other as people. And so many uh, pieces of bipartisan legislation have come from that because they get to know each other. It's old school. Like I was talking about with, you know, Ted Kennedy and the people who used to to, uh, um, to get try to get things done across party lines. And so there's a lot of that. And, you know, look, women um, also just have different pers- perspectives and come, come just like Different people of, of various walks of life, gender in a gender neutral way. Um, it just it, the approach is is different. Yeah, I also I mean want to say this in such a way that I don't. But I think there the, there's a temperament element here. There's not fighting for fighting's sake. Exactly. Um, you know, it's that not that you, women don't have egos. Women have egos, but it's not the same. You have to have, egos you have to the be testosterone. In politics, yeah, yeah. But you don't involved. see, yeah, the, the testosterone <laughs> uh, issue, which too often intrudes uh, in our politics. Jean Shaheen said she, she's a uh, senator from New Hampshire. Um, again, first female. Uh, governor. I remember her when she was running New Hampshire for Gary Hart. Exactly. Back in, in exactly. 1984. Exactly. So she she uh, was the first governor, uh, female governor in New Hampshire, first female senator from New Hampshire. But one of the reasons I wanted to talk to her is exactly that she started out as a staffer and as a campaign, you know, uh, campaign aide and a strategist. And um, and she she jokes that she decided to run because all the men she was working for couldn't win. <laughs> but but she talks about the fact that. That in her experience, she uh, she she actually she, another person who lost the first time she ran for the Senate. She went to the Harvard Institute of Politics, and that her her experience was that women, um, obviously this is a generalization, but women for the most part want to run because they want to actually accomplish something and get something done. There's something that really burned them up on a local level or something that they saw on a national level, and sometimes men just want to be senator. <laughs> Patty Murray is a great example. Perfect of that, example. Who started off on school issues. Yep. And wound up. Now she's one of the the, uh, the uh, leading 
Democrats in the uh, in the and, Senate. And she did one of the few pieces of real bipartisan legislation that we've seen in the last five years. She did it with Paul Ryan, but she worked really hard across party lines, and she yeah. got it done. Well, for my money, you, Dana Bash, are one of the badass women Aww. of Washington. And you say that also, to all the girls. I do not. <laughs> I do not. And uh, and a great colleague. And I Back feel you, lucky David. to uh, to work with you. And thank you so much. Thank for you. Time. It's my honor. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.